Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guests are Edwin Outwater, who is the conductor for the Summer with the Symphony series at the SF Symphony. Edwin Outwater has conducted in several places, the music director of Ontario's Kitchener-Waterloo Symphony, went to Harvard, resident conductor, San Francisco Symphony, 2001 to 2006, music director of the San Francisco Youth Orchestra, 2001 to 2005, has conducted for Chicago Symphony, New World Symphony, BBC National Orchestra, New York Philharmonic, also with me, Richard Lonsdorf, who is the Associate Director of Artistic Planning, San Francisco Symphony, and planned this summer series, worked with the New York Philharmonic's Artistic Planning Office, and another graduate of Harvard University. Richard Lonsdorf, you knew when that you were going to be planning this series. Did you plan last year? I think the timeline for the summer is about six to eight months, usually. We're, of course, always stocking away little ideas here and there, but round about November through January is when I sit down and start to figure out what makes the most sense for the upcoming summer, you know, especially because we're dealing with a lot of popular franchises and music and things like that, is you try to figure out what might be most appealing, you know, six months ahead for people to listen to. And I think we announced in February or so, that's about when everything gets solidified. When does Edwin come in? When do you come into this? About the same time. I mean, it's a really a team effort working with the symphony. For me, I'm deciding which pieces are best to conduct and how everything fits together for the musicians. And Richard and I work very closely as a team putting the summer together. There are nine different concerts all taking place in the month of July. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's nine different programs, I believe. And so that's about, you know, 13 or 14 concerts total. We do a couple repeats. And it's a great mix of things, and I think part of the discussion in planning is always a sense of balance, trying to get a good variety of art forms and, and different guest artists in, and even variety on a macro level from summer to summer, because we want to make sure that people keep engaging and you know sort of always have a, a bit of a surprise when they open the brochure when it comes in the mail. Before we go into each of the individual shows, a uh, question for Edwin Outwater. When you're preparing this and you're looking at things like Beethoven's Ninth or the Overture from Candide, these are in a way old war horses. How do you try to keep it fresh for yourself and for your orchestra? I actually don't get too bored with Beethoven or Bernstein. I think it's incredible music. And I think one of the reasons we play these quite well-known pieces in the summer is we found that a lot of people like to come to the symphony for the first time. We have a lot of first-time visitors in the summer, and often we do these pieces kind of to draw people in and expand our audience in the summer. So for many, many people, they've heard about Beethoven 9, you know, and this for many of our people who come, that's the first time they actually hear it. For me as a musician, even if I conduct Beethoven 9 once a year at most, maybe once every two years, and 
I never tire when I open the score. I've been thinking about it for weeks now, just how to make it different, how to make it special. When you talk about making it different and make it special, how do you do that? It's through years of study and making it, you know, very personal to how you view the notes that Beethoven wrote on the page. As you do the piece a lot, it becomes yours, uh, just like any musician doing any piece of music. So for me, it's it's always looking at it fresh, looking at the notes on the page, like they were just written down, thinking about how I've changed as a person, how I think about music differently. And often that's reflected through Beethoven's great music. That's what makes this music great, is that it can, in fact, be interpreted a million different ways, just like a line of Shakespeare. Is that the same with, say, Candide? Candide, a little less so than Beethoven's Ninth, I would say. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fair question. Candide is fun. I mean, that's another kind of musical experience because as many times as we played it, that piece just crackles along. It's four minutes of glee and virtuosity. And I would say the orchestra and I never tire of doing that piece. It's something we've done many times, but it's also just a gasp when you turn on the ignition on that piece. When you're putting a specific program together, if we're talking about, say, that particular concert on the 23rd of July, how do you then turn around and program? Do you start with, say, Gershwin? Do you start with Bernstein? Do you start with the idea? I'm trying to think for this one. We, I think in this case, we started with the theme. You know, we like to do an American music concert every summer. And then the crucial next choice is the guest artist. I would agree with yeah. that. Yeah. And um, Edwin, uh, I know you've worked with Makoto Ozone a whole lot. He's just this super fun Japanese jazz pianist who crosses the divide into classical music so easily and creatively. Yeah, Makoto made his debut here two summers ago, I believe, and is an incredibly virtuosic jazz pianist in the tradition of Oscar Peterson, but is also in love with classical music and is actually able to teach himself to play pieces like the Prokofiev Third Piano Concerto. He's one of the most kind of supercharged musicians I've ever come across. He's full of joy, and in fact, the last time he played with us, the members of the orchestra, many of them said it was one of the greatest concerts they've ever experienced. You should have seen the grins on their face. So to have him back, he will play Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, but he also improvises on top of what Gershwin wrote, which is fun and it works incredibly well. He's also doing some arrangements of classical, what we call corrupted classics, taking classical tunes like from Mazorksky's Pictures and Exhibition and doing a jazz version of it. So mm -hmm. that's a very special concert. And, and though the repertoire on the surface may seem very familiar, the experience that the audience is going to have once they come in the door will be quite surprising and wonderful. Richard Lonsdorf, let's go back and let's go through some of the decisions on these specific concerts. Okay, the first is July 7th, Music of John Williams. I guess you decided you were going to just do the music rather than with the film. Part of the complexity of these film concerts, which we've been doing more and more of, and they're fantastic, is that we generally are not the people who produce them. You know, when you look at some of the film concerts we're doing later this season, like Star Trek The Ultimate Voyage and Ratatouille, those are independently created and supported by the film studios and by these dedicated producers who strip the music out of the films, preserve all the dialogue and sound effects, make sure that they clean up the actual score and parts that the orchestra reads the music off of, creates a uh, synchronized click track or metronome that the orchestra and conductor listen to while the performance is going on so that they remain synchronized with the film. All of these details. Frankly, we just wanted to 
have fun celebrating the composer John Williams and all of the different sort of colors of film music that he's created in his career and not necessarily have to worry about selecting from a much smaller set of clips that have already been produced. And so, you know, we go back to some of his original classics like Jaws and E.T. and things like that, but all the way up to um, music from the movie Lincoln and that might be the newest thing on the concert. No, actually there's music from Star Wars The Force Awakens that we're doing. It's just great. You know, we're able to really react to all these different flavors of this fantastic career. And the point of all that, again, is what Edwin Outwater was saying, which is the idea is to bring people into the symphony who may never have been there. Yeah. Even for me, I think I heard John Williams the minute I heard Beethoven as a kid at the same time. And and for so many people, the glory of, of, of orchestral sound, John Williams is their first exposure Another reason there's no film in this one is that he really can stand on his own as a composer. And in fact, his music is so popular beyond the movies that he's achieved a very, very special status as a film composer that he can kind of stand alone in the concert hall and and we can have a huge sold out audience listening to it. It's a credit to the quality of what he does. Well, when you're conducting, what are you looking at? Obviously, he's neither Bernstein nor Beethoven. (laughs) John Williams composes in the great tradition of of lush Hollywood film scores, which of course are linked to classical music. Uh, Composers like Korngold and uh, Max Steiner, who came over from Europe and integrated this lush orchestral sound into the movies. And John Williams certainly has carried on that tradition to this day. So when you look at John Williams's music, the melodies are his and they're incredibly um, catchy, but it is the world perhaps of Richard Strauss or Prokofiev or Holst. Not to say that he's stealing them, but he's writing the tradition of, of that rich romantic sound. And that's something that you look for in that music. When you're looking ahead, say, to 100 years from now, uh, are we necessarily looking at people like Steiner and Korngold or Williams as the classical composers of this era, minus the uh, the film? We might see some of those film scores. I mean, you certainly see Bernstein's On the Waterfront played and and other film music. Alexander Nevsky by Prokofiev's film score. It's not for me to say what will survive and what won't, but it's not unlikely that some of these pieces may in fact endure on their own. One interesting thing I've been seeing a lot of recently is is Bernard Herrmann's music is played a lot in concert. So you'll see a classical program with a vertigo suite integrated into it. So people love to put things into categories. I'm not particularly interested in that. I just love good music and seeing where it all falls is is, is the job of history, not of me. Well, you've also got, as you said, for um, Gershwin or for Bernstein or even for Beethoven, there's a latitude in there, a latitude of improvisation, a latitude of pulling apart and reconstructing. Does that also occur with Williams? People still want to hear, you know, those opening chords of Star Wars. <laughs> That's a really good question. I think it is so familiar to people. There's kind of a way you do John Williams because we've heard it in film so many times. Though I think as time passes, people will probably take more liberties with his music as it becomes something in and of itself. And I think when we play it live, you may hear it slightly different here and there just because the orchestra and I are making sound in the moment and and responding to the way things happen. But I will say it's a thrill, even to this day, as many times as I've conducted it, hearing those opening sounds of Star Wars, not coming out of a loudspeaker, but coming out of an actual, one of the greatest orchestras in the world, uh, it makes your hair stand on end. It's a credit to John Williams, and it's a credit to how great the San Francisco Symphony sounds playing this music. 
What are these actual pieces? Are they the pieces from the film? Are they suites that have been created later? I think in the case of this concert, they're pretty much themes from the films themselves, you know, with a few little changes, but we're not doing medleys or suites. We're really doing the source material in this in this program, which mm-hmm. is really fun. I should say John Williams himself is very invested in the legacy and integrity of his music. And so he has taken great care to publish and edit you know, his signature series of a lot of his film music, which is great for symphony orchestras everywhere because, you know, it's easily available without having to go spelunking, you know, through film history. And um, it is as multifaceted and sparkling as you remember it on the screen. And it's just, it's, it's, I'm really excited actually to hear some of this new Star Wars music, which I'm sure is just as fabulous as you remember it from the film. But he went right into publishing it and making it available. You know, I think it's just a really great testament to his own creativity. For you, Edwin, Outwater, a lot of this is fairly traditional. If you're listening yourself, what do you listen to? I listen to all sorts of things. I love classical music. I love listening to great performances of standard repertoire of conductors I may have never heard do a piece. I mean, I was at the opera a few days ago listening to Yanufa, which is so beautiful. I listen to a lot of contemporary classical music. I listen to all sorts of kind of rock and indie stuff and I would say my iPod is extremely eclectic. You know, <laughs> it could be Bach to Beyonce. What I'm trained to do is classical music. And I have to say that's my total love is one of all those hours of practice and devotion are to classical music. But the great thing about classical music is it allows you, the skill set is so high that it allows you kind of to jump into other genres of music. As long as you have a feel for them, you certainly as a classical musician have the ability to, to perform them. Before we get back to this, a lot of radio stations have gone off classical music, calling them old white men. Not that a lot of music isn't written by women as well these days, certainly. Where do you see the future of classical music? Are we talking about something that's dying? Are we talking about something that's coming back? People always think classical music is dying for some reason. I don't know why. It's such great music. But I think it's thriving. I mean, everywhere I go, I see young people learning the music. I think in the age of the iPod and, and Spotify, actually, I could, we're past the iPod now. We're in iPhones. Yeah. We're in the cloud. We're in the cloud now. <laughs> and But in fact, it's never been easier to access classical music. So a lot of younger listeners that I know listen to it along with everything else. I think in generations before, people would identify with one kind of music culturally. And I think we're in the age of eclectic listening. Mm-hmm. And so Maybe classical music is not in the mainstream as much as it once was in in a certain kind of culture, but at the same time, it's spreading to very unlikely and wonderful places. So uh, in the summer, especially, we see these full houses for these concerts, and it doesn't feel like that to me. That being said, I think a lot of the rituals of going to classical music are foreign to people. So when people come into uh, concert, the concert master tuning, when do you clap, when do you don't clap, what do you wear, the formality is something that people don't understand. And so I know the San Francisco Symphony in the Summer Series is trying to make it a very inviting environment, but still take the music very seriously. In our Soundbox series, we're experimenting with new formats and new ways of presenting music. I know MTT is always up to new presentations of things like On the Town and Misa mm-hmm. Solemnis, uh, multimedia presentations. So mm-hmm. it's something we think about, I will tell you that. Yeah, this organization is incredibly eager to pioneer sort of the next phase of, of the, the ritual of going to concerts. And I think it's something that we've been known for, for playing with for years. 
it's an active topic of discussion behind the scenes. And, um, you know, there's not going to be any sort of grand unveiling coming up, but but constantly tweaking. I'm, I'm even thinking of next season. Michael Tilson Thomas is putting on a, one of our performances of Beethoven's Fifth as a discovery concert. And it's literally taking the piece apart and doing almost like a lecture and, and video supplement format of going through the piece of music in a way to sort of access some of its deeper secrets. And we see this as as a first step for many people and an attempt to take a lot of this great music and make it as inviting as possible. So you, you'll hear Edwin talking from the stage a lot, you know, welcoming people and setting up what's coming up. We try to invite interesting collaborators like Madeleine Peru to um, to create this this uh, Parisian evening that we've put together where we have music by Debussy, Gershwin's American in Paris, and then Madeleine Peru performing with the orchestra all these classic French sort of street songs and classic songs from, from the middle of the 20th century and sort of tying that arc together of a, of a cohesive cultural look, say, at France and Paris. We see that as sort of a way forward in terms of putting music in context of its history and its culture and, you know, the way people appreciate it. Well, that's something that happened way back in the 50s. Leonard Bernstein did a whole series like that, and a lot of people got into classical music because he was able to do that. The San Francisco Symphony has done extensive work in education. Uh, They're keeping score series, which aired on PBS, and educationally, thousands and thousands of school kids a year in the Bay Area, not to mention every school kid in the San Francisco Public School District sees the symphony. So there's a tremendous concern about reaching people and keeping the music out there. Bernstein's Young People's Concerts are certainly unsurpassed and a huge influence on me. A Russian celebration, what brought you to create that particular evening that's on July 22nd? I think it's also another kind of gateway for new audiences, that people love the music of Tchaikovsky. They love the music of Rachmaninoff. The idea of seeing a virtuosic piano concerto for the first time, um, seeing how incredible it is to actually play a Rachmaninoff piano concerto in the room is something that we find gets people hooked on coming to orchestras again. So it it was a no-brainer, in a sense, to do a concert like that. When you're doing a concert, are you the one doing all of the decisions on what you're going to do? As far as what pieces we play? Yeah, Yeah, I would say we work together, and the symphony's usually very supportive of my ideas, and and sometimes they may tell me, oh, we played that piece two years ago, or we played Mm -hmm. it somewhere else, but as far as putting these programs together, a lot of what I choose. When you're putting a program together, what are you looking at in terms of having one piece follow another? I'm looking at an experience for the audience. So really, it can be a very different experience from concert to concert. I mean, I do some very wild programs, you know. I do very offbeat programs. In the summer, I really want to hook people in. So I want it to be high energy. I want it to be fun. I want it to be exciting the minute they walk in the door from the first time they hear the orchestra to the final note. So it's kind of a simple formula, but also I'm kind of, as I put these pieces together, kind of imagining the journey emotionally that the audience is going to go through. And also thinking that perhaps in the summer, it's a lot of new audience. Do you ever find yourself going, "Uh uh-oh, this particular piece in this context doesn't work. What do I do now? No. You know, programming is something I've been doing for, you know, 25 years, and uh, I'm somewhat known for doing it. It's something that everyone has an opinion on. Everyone loves to talk about programming, but actually putting together a great program, especially one that's maybe a little bit offbeat, is hard to do. But what is much harder is actually learning the pieces and conducting them. (laughs) He has the hard job. (laughs) But I, I think there is some small degree of experimentation in certain senses because there are 
always instances where things haven't been tried in a certain way. I actually think of last season when we were at the Stern Grove Festival, stringing together a really unique set of pieces about nature and, you know, just kind of seeing how things would read in the outdoors and, you know, juxtaposing different genres of music. And, you know, it's it's it can be fun, but, you, you know, I think there's about a 10 percent push in that direction. Otherwise, you feel like you might be sitting inside a box, Yeah, you know. Are all of these concerts, not all of them are at San Francisco Symphony or are all of them? Two concerts, actually three concerts this summer are at different venues. The 4th of July celebration at the Shoreline Amphitheater is a great annual tradition with fireworks at the end, uh, and that's on the 4th of July. Then we have our annual appearance at the Stern Grove Festival, which is on the 10th of July, Sunday afternoon, and we're highlighting American music there, uh, including uh, Dvorak's New World Symphony, which is fantastic. On the 27th of July is our second annual free concert at the Waterfront in San Francisco. That's on Pier 27 at the Embarcadero. And that's another kind of bonus Russian evening. And this is where you get to see Makoto Ozone, our fabulous jazz pianist, playing Prokofiev, which is something Edwin has witnessed him do. And he said it's spectacular. We were really excited to bring him out here for that. And and also Mussorgsky's Pictures at an Exhibition, which is a great, colorful, narrative almost like jukebox of different musical experiences. It should all make for a really lovely afternoon out by the the bay. Are you doing uh, the Stern Grove? And, uh... I am indeed. All three of the concerts Richard mm-hmm. mentioned I'll be conducting. The Stern Grove and the Shoreline concerts are traditional. They're always full of people. People know about them. Pier 27 we just started last year. It's a brand new space uh, on the Embarcadero that was built, a huge lawn. We had such a spectacular start. We were wondering how many people would show up because it had never been there before, but it was tens of thousands of people, it seemed like, and well, maybe not quite 8,000. <laughs> it was full. Yes. It was so, full. Somewhere around 8,000 people, but it was, it was great because it was this brand new idea of ours to go out there. And, um, and I have to say the pier and the Port Authority of San Francisco were really supportive of making that an active public space. It could not have been more pleasant and fabulous. It was just a, a delight of a it's concert. It's a great combination because yeah. people will show up, you know, and get their place on the lawn. But also because it's on the Embarcadero, a lot of people, tourists and yeah. visitors will just walk by and then join the crowd. So we're mm-hmm. really excited to be returning to that venue. A couple of questions about that. Is there a different way to conduct in these different venues? I mean, you, you conduct in a lot of venues. Mm-hmm. From your perspective on the acoustics, does that change anything of how you work? Tremendously, because we're mic'd. I mean, we're playing to, you know, huge audiences. We have microphones. You know, you really can't be as subtle outside as you can be in a concert hall. Our job is to be clear and communicate the music through the amplification, through the mics, to an extremely large audience. How do you do that? How do you make sure that the sound out there is going to be good enough in one example of that would be in a concert hall, you can play very, very soft and with a very thin and, and kind of ethereal sound. That doesn't fly in an outdoor venue for most cases because people even are talking over it. So you never know. Or there might be a ship siren that goes helicopter. off or a helicopter. <laughs> so what we try to do is play with a really deep, rich sound, whether it be loud or soft. And that kind of carries through the microphones. And that would also, I would guess, influence the pieces that you program. You bet it does. Uh, We can't do quiet (laughs) pieces out there. We've learned that because it just gets lost in the ambient noise. So we we think very carefully what piece can we choose that will come across from outside. In the symphony hall, this San Francisco symphony, 
If you were looking for a seat, which would be your favorite seat to hear the music, where would it be? There are a lot of good seats in this hall, actually. I have some people, you know, and this is true in almost every hall, is that balcony seats, even though they're the most affordable, sometimes have the best sound because a lot of acousticians build to the last mm-hmm. row. So uh, though you may not be as close up to the orchestra, unless you bring binoculars, you'll hear really spectacular sound right up at the top of the hall. Um, when you're closer to the orchestra, you get that intimacy, you know, of, of seeing the faces and the, and the movement mm-hmm. a little bit better. So we're very lucky with Davies, actually, that almost every seat is has something to offer. It's a very warm and inviting place, I've always found, that when people walk in, they feel at home. Is the same true of Lincoln Center? It's a more problematic hall. I have nothing but love for all the organizations (laughs) for whom I've ever worked. Um, But notably, the New York Philharmonic and now the David Geffen Hall at Lincoln Center just announced that they are doing a pretty serious renovation project. And one of the chief things they hope to fix is the acoustics of that hall, which have been problematic for years. When I got here to San Francisco, I felt like I could hear again. This hall is so glorious. I'm reminded periodically when I have visitors here and things like that. A friend of mine just remarked the other night, he said, it sounds like I'm listening to a recording of the San Francisco Symphony. It's that good. (laughs) It really is a lucky thing we have here in San Francisco. But acoustics are a tough business. They are. And in fact, this hall had to go through a major renovation because Mm -hmm. its acoustics, when it opened, were not successful. But I do love this hall. I find it to be a warm place. I think some calls are cold visually and sound-wise, and and I think the hall feels very warm and inviting here, and it sounds great. Would you refuse to do a concert in a bad hall? I wish I could, but often I'm I'm not given that option. And in fact, some of the greatest orchestras in the world, Philadelphia Orchestra notably, in its earlier days at the Academy of Music, had a hall that everyone knew wasn't that great, and they developed their sound, their rich, lush sound, to carry it across compromised acoustics. So in fact, the challenge of playing in a quote-unquote bad hall led to an orchestra with one of the most beautiful sounds in the world. In certain ways, being forced to accommodate crappy acoustics forces you to be better in certain ways, I guess. I think so, absolutely. I think for me, the most important thing in the hall is you feel the impact of the sound, that you feel it viscerally. And so for me, the halls that are least successful, it feels like there's a kind of a gauze or you're in a fish tank, that that it just sounds far away and you can't feel the energy, that you can't feel the sound moving the air around you. Mm -hmm. And then that causes the listener to lose contact with the orchestra and the live sound. In fact, it would be better to listen to a recording, you know, because you feel the energy of the sound more. That's not the case, luckily, here in Davies. Yeah, and sometimes even the, the blend is something you notice, like when you're in, in different halls and you, you feel that certain instruments or areas of the orchestra are sticking out at you funny. You know, a percussionist yeah. is in some weird reverberant corner and you just hear the cowbell constantly. <laughs> it's one of those invisible things that you just don't notice until it's bad, I think. I think about my job the same way, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm invisible until I screw up. Edwin Atwater, that means that if you're going into a hall that you don't know, you're going to have to get there early and at least hear something, right? It doesn't help if no one's playing in it, though. I mean, you can clap your hands and whistle and and get a feel. You know, we're very adaptable creatures, musicians. I mean, I'm not just conductors, but orchestra musicians and soloists that we have learned to adapt very quickly and adjust in very subtle ways to what we hear. You know, when an orchestra goes on tour, we may have a 30-minute sound check in a hall that we don't know. And that's just one of the many skill sets of great classical musicians is that kind of flexibility combined with incredible accuracy and subtlety. 
We have three concerts here which you are not conducting. Uh, Ratatouille, film with live orchestra, music from Final Fantasy games, and Star Trek Ultimate Voyage. Those three concerts, have you ever done any of those live film things? I have, actually. Not in a while. And I'll do little bits of it here and there. I need to take a break because I have so many concerts. So I usually take the film concerts <laughs> off. It is really fun. There are various ways you can do it with a click track or some of the ones which I've done, which are quite challenging, are with just clock and timing, which takes hours and hours of preparation um, to get that right because you're counting the seconds along with the tempo of the music, which are you know, not one beat per second. Let's put it that way. So that's always very tricky. I think film music is wonderful and I love to do it. I just don't do it here in the summer. You did a uh, silent movie? We actually premiered uh, this year, my orchestra in Ontario, a brand new film score to the old silent horror movie, The Hands of Orlac. And we commissioned a composer, and it's a really terrific score that he came up with. Um, it's one of the first horror movies. You know, it's been done a million times. Someone's hands are put onto a pianist who's, who was in a train accident, and the hands become murderous on their own way. <laughs> and so one of my friends who was a composer said, this has to have a new film score. And it was a huge success. I think it'll be done many, many times. When you're doing something like that, that gives you a chance to actually watch the screen and add your own little material to it. I can peek at the screen once in a while, but but often I'm looking at the music and listening to the click track. So uh, that's kind of why conducting some of this music is is more of a service to the audience than to my own enjoyment, because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really just trying to coordinate it for everybody who's listening and for everyone who's playing. So it's 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 a lot of work. The final concert of the season is Pink Martini. What is Pink Martini? That is a very good question. Oh, um, it defies description, maybe. <laughs> well, they are a young group. They've been around for quite a while now. They're based in Portland, Oregon. They're a large ensemble that they call themselves kind of archaeologists of party music, that they find music from all over the world, some songs which are very well-known, some songs which are less known, and create an incredible party atmosphere with special guests, with different singers, and uh, it is an incredible show. I'm always just so tickled by their incredibly eclectic mixture of repertoire, and um, their band leader, Thomas Lauderdale, I think really prides himself on this musical archaeology, and also finding collaborators who have really interesting things to say. Like last summer we had the Von Trapps, um, or sorry, two summers ago when Pink Martini was last with, last with us. And this is a, a group of, of descendants of the actual Von Trapp singing family. And they did, you know, everything from ABBA covers in Swedish to a, a great version of the Lonely Goat Herd. And this year I just learned that Pink Martini is bringing uh, NPR's own Ari Shapiro <laughs> to sing a few uh, numbers with the band, uh, and he's recorded with them as well. It's just great fun. Uh, and their lead singer for this tour is Storm Large, who got her start here in San Francisco and I know has many fans going way back. The three films, did you program them as well, Richard? Yeah, that falls to me when I'm giving Edwin the night off to uh, decide what we're going to do with our time. You know, this is really when I scan the catalogs of what's available to see what really seems like a great match for the area. And I think we have three great hits here. Star Trek The Ultimate Voyage is this 
celebration of the entire Star Trek franchise, which this summer is celebrating its 50th anniversary, if you can believe it, dating back to the debut of the original television series. This wonderful producer, Justin Freer, who has worked with us on a couple film concerts so far, he conducts, he does the musicological research, uh, and he puts together these shows and has done a lot of great work kind of with the loving fan's eye of pulling together these famous moments. I mean, battle sequences, you know, Klingon battles, title sequences, moments of captains being brave and making tough decisions uh, across all of the films and uh, television series. I mean, it's really great. And it features music by composers like Jerry Goldsmith, who worked across a lot of different Star Trek products, as well as many famous films. People like Michael Giacchino, who is writing the music for the new Star Trek films that are coming out, including a new one this summer. And even people like Dennis McCarthy. Um, I feel like music has been inseparably linked to Star Trek um, since I started watching it. And those, especially those theme sequences get stuck in your head and then iterated throughout. It's like a ring cycle's worth of different motifs throughout the entire franchise. I fully expect that will be an incredibly nerdy and fun evening at the symphony. But then Hot on Its Heels is the movie Ratatouille, which is um, by our friends Pixar right across the bay in Emeryville. We have a great history with Pixar here at the San Francisco Symphony. We helped them create their very first uh, symphonic offering, the Pixar in Concert series, which we've now done twice. And that's a sort of celebration of the entire output of Pixar through several short clips. But this project, Ratatouille, is their first symphonic feature-length project. This is music by Michael Giacchino, who I just think is a fantastic film composer who is so diverse in his styles. But this one really traffics in, in just adorable French idioms and a lot of accordion and cafe jazz and things like that as you follow this you know, rat in a restaurant. And that one is actually double matinees, which is great for bringing kids, um, so we don't have to keep everyone up too late. And that's conducted by Sarah Hicks, um, who's a wonderful film conductor we work with a lot. And finally, we have the final symphony project on July 27th, which is a celebration of the music of the Final Fantasy game series, um, which is an incredibly venerable franchise that's been around for, I mean, I think at least two decades, really. It, it dates back to some of the earliest video game consoles. Nobu Uematsu is a Japanese video game composer who composed many of the works on this concert and has really sort of legendary status at this point among video game composers who wrote most of the music for this. And uh, we're incredibly lucky that Hironobu Sakaguchi who created the Final Fantasy franchise. I kind of call him like the George Lucas of Final Fantasy, if that helps people kind of grab onto it. He will actually be here to give a talk before the concert and interact with the audience a little bit from the stage. It is an incredible opportunity to to distill one's fandom of these games uh, into a great musical experience. You know, there's a piano concerto of some of the material. Um, it should be a really great show. I'm looking forward to it. You go to every single show. I do. It creates a very busy summer, but it's it's a whole lot of fun. I mean, I plan the whole year, you know, looking forward to this. Edwin Outwater, when you've got a lot of concerts coming up in a very short amount of time, I would guess that the rehearsal, you don't just do one concert for one rehearsal. I mean, we have a very clever rehearsal schedule that allows us really to do a great job of rehearsing and preparing this music in a very short amount of time. And there's also a lot of familiarity with me and the orchestra, that I've been in front of the orchestra since 2001, and we have a shorthand and, and know how to really get the most out of, of the time we have. So it's a really good mix. No one in this organization presents music that's not at the highest level. That's something that's really, really important to us in the summer. And it takes a lot of careful planning to ensure that that's the case. 
Are you going to, you know, rehearse on the same day, Beethoven's Ninth and Gershwin? We try not to mix it up too much. Part of the thing is keeping the orchestra focused and having it all very clear. It really takes hours of work to kind of know the psychology of the players to make sure that we can all do our best. It's something I take a lot of pride in, in this job. When you have a special guest performer like a pianist coming in, do you have to wait for the pianist to be there? How do you rehearse around a specific special guest? You know, in the case of a very famous piano concerto, this orchestra's played the Rachmaninoff second piano concerto many times, so we don't need to really rehearse it without the soloist. Though I always rehearse alone with the soloist before we get on stage with the orchestra. And if the soloist and I are in sync, then the orchestra fits right in very, very quickly. And what about someone who does improvisations? The thing about improvisations is you have to know when they start and when they end. And if you can figure that out, sometimes it's a head nod, sometimes it's a plan, but um, it's something, yet another skill we have to know as musicians. Edwin Outwater and Richard Lonsdorf, final question to each of you. Uh, Richard Lonsdorf, how far in the future are you planning San Francisco Symphony now? Oh, there are plans going years from now. I mean, I think someone recently referenced something happening in 2020. That's part of the nature of the beast, particularly big institutional initiatives setting those in motion years before they become public. Frankly, I will say, though, that we are not quite as long-winded as opera in terms of how far ahead, far in advance it plans. That's at least a five-year cycle. <laughs> but what I love is that some of these things we plan way in advance, but we leave room to be able to pivot and adapt to changing tastes and to some degrees even trends in music. And I think the summer is always a reflection of that. That's my vague, all-encompassing answer to that. And Edwin Outwater, how far in advance are you doing conducting at this point? I'm planning several years ahead for programs. It's funny, you plan them and then you conduct them years year and a half or two years later. And it's, it's, a, it's an, oh yeah, I, I, that's what I did. I decided to do that. And, you know, the musicians like is always study or practice, you know, if you're an instrumentalist. So there is a long view and there's a visionary view, but there's also a very day-to-day -day view of getting ready for what's next with the concerts that are coming up. One question I didn't ask, what musical instruments do you play? I came from the orchestra. I'm a double bass player. And, uh, I play a little bit of piano, a little bit of clarinet as well, but I would say bass is my main instrument. And you play that with the symphony? I've never played with this orchestra, actually, but uh, I did play a lot as kind of a freelance musician around when I was younger, though I got the conducting bug very, very young. So uh, I was playing professionally when I was 16 and 17 years old, so and played through my 20s, and now it's hard to travel around with the bass when you're a conductor, too. So I wish that my bass playing were a bit better right now. For more information, you can go to sfsymphony.org or specifically for the summer series, sfsymphony.org slash summer. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>